I invite you, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, to turn in them again to the book of Psalms. As we continue this morning our building our summer playlist of sorts, for those of you who have been here the past couple weeks, we've already marveled at the song of Revelation that was Psalm 19. We have uh, been filled with joy last week uh, at the song of forgiveness uh, that is Psalm 32. And now as we turn to Psalm 63, I want us, it's my prayer for us, that we would be renewed that we would be renewed through what I am calling a song of longing. We could also call it a song of satisfaction. Because they're both here. Longing and satisfaction. This is a psalm for Christians. For those of you who know and love the Lord and want to know and love Him more. And this is a song for non-Christians. It's a song for unbelievers, for those of you who are asking the deep questions about life and existence. It's a song for Christians who are doubting and want to be rekindled. And so listen as I read. This is such a great psalm, I know familiar uh, to many of you. One of my favorites uh, as well. Psalm 63, follow along as I read. This is a psalm of David, as you can see, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you. I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for the jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. As most of you know, and as... We shared this morning in the 9 o'clock hour for those of you who were here, myself and a team of others last month served for a week on the Yakima Indian Reservation just south of the city of Yakima. You know, having having never been over that way since I moved here five years ago, one of the things that struck me again when we were there was something that struck me during my time in Southern California. 
contrary to the lushness and the greenness that we have on this side of the mountains, Yakima has an average annual rainfall of eight inches. Eight inches a year. It's the desert. It's hot. It's dry. And I'm always amazed when I get into desert climates. I'm amazed, and I commented to this effect one time when we were in the car coming back from Kids Club. I'm amazed that anything has the ability to live and survive in the desert. I mean, certainly there aren't huge deciduous trees and large evergreens in Yakima. But there's plenty of foliage. There's plenty of plant life. Now there's fields of of hops and there's fields of mint. I commented on those. And, And those fields are meticulously irrigated by the farmers and by those who care for them. I'm not talking about those plants. I'm talking about everything else, the the sagebrush, the knotweed, the wormwood, great names for plants. How in the world do these things survive? Well, some of you maybe are botanists. Some of you just know a lot about plants. Of course, succulents, when we think about the desert, we think about cactus, cacti, we think about succulents. And I know that succulents, they, they store their water uh, in themselves, they guard that water with prickly thorns against anyone that would try to suck that life out of them. But there are not a lot of succulents. There aren't a lot of cacti in Yakima. And so how do these others survive? Well, did a little thinking, did a little research. And it's really amazing to think about God's design. Some of these plants in the desert, they only open up their pores at night, allowing the cool, moist, damp air of the evening to feed them. And then when the morning comes, they shut themselves up. Some plants have very small leaves that create less surface area for the wind and the sun to pull the moisture out of them and and evaporate what life-giving water they have. And and then there's the sagebrush. The sagebrush, which is literally all over the place. And it's all over most deserts. And its tactic, in addition to having leaves that are covered with tiny hairs, its tactic is a taproot. This long root that it just sends deep down into the soil. As many as three Five, seven, ten feet deep, depending on the size of the sagebrush. Just deep down in the soil. And then it supplements that with horizontal roots that grow out along the ground and suck up any dew that might come on the surface. But it's that taproot that's just amazing to me. And you're thinking, well, this sounds more like it's better suited for another psalm where we're extolling God's creation and the wonder of it. Well, it certainly could fit there. But I want us to think about the sagebrush and its context because I think the sagebrush suits our psalm today. There are just two truths that I want us to meditate on for the next few minutes. Uh, More could be said 
about Psalm 63, but I want us to meditate on primarily the first eight verses and two truths. And the first one is this. We live in a world of thirst. You and I live in a world of thirst. David, the writer of this psalm, like the sagebrush that I just spoke of, is in a literal wilderness. I suspect, in fact, I say pretty confidently, that none of us have experienced a level of thirst that David is probably experiencing as he wanders the wilderness of Judah. Think swollen tongue, parched lips, weak muscles for lack of water. None of us have really experienced thirst. But David here is in the wilderness. He's thirsty. We can assume what drove him there. Uh, Verse 11 of Psalm 63 gives us an indication that he was at this point a king. David had several episodes, those of you who know the scriptures well, where he was fleeing for his life, first from Saul before he was king, and then from his son Absalom after he was king. And we think that that is the context of his flight to the wilderness of Judah. And the wilderness is not a friendly place. Just three things about the wilderness. It's a place of isolation. David's lost the company of his throne. He's lost the support of his friends and his family. He's separated and he's alone. The wilderness is a place of confusion and and sorrow. Can you even imagine the emotions and the pain that David, not just the king, not just the man after God's own heart, but David the father must be feeling as he flees for his life from his own flesh and blood. It's a place of confusion and sorrow. And then thirdly, the wilderness is a place of searching and longing. No doubt David didn't have all the answers. He didn't have the security that he once had. And he didn't understand the meaning of all this that he was undergoing and going through. Now you sit here this morning. You're not in the wilderness. You're in the rain. But in a sense, before we even get to David's word, David's experience, I want us to see, is our experience to some degree. It's the human experience. And yes, we've never experienced the extent of David's physical and emotional pain, but just like David, we are in the wilderness. We are stuck in a dry and weary land. Thirsty people who are looking for life. And it's not just you in this room, it's everyone. It's those who right now are numbing themselves in front of the TV because they don't know what else to do. We live in a world of thirst. I heard once that not too long ago, the word soul, S-O-U-L, if you put the word soul in the title of your book, 
chances are that book sales will increase an average of 15%. For all the mess that's going on in our society and in our world, for all the chasing after money and reputation and pleasure, we still are a people that are thirsty. We're longing. We want to know what to do with our souls. And so we're in search of life. We are in search of that which satisfies. And I know that I'm, in some sense, preaching to the choir this morning, right? I know most of you, you love and know Jesus. We in this room, we're supposed to be different. I'm supposed to be different, in that, and yet we and I, we, we get ourselves wrapped around the very same things that the world gets itself wrapped around. I mean, you're here this morning. That's wonderful. I'm glad you're here. But why are you here? Are you here because you are wanting to carry on a tradition? Are you here because this is a box that you feel like you need to check? Are you here to fulfill a duty? Or are you here because out there is a wilderness and in here you know that there is life? You see, David's words reveal to us that that's what David knows. In David's wilderness wanderings, he has found a remedy for life in the wilderness. And it's not the restoration of his crown. It's not the return to the comforts and security of his kingdom. He wants one thing. He wants God. And that's the point of Psalm 63. We live in a world of thirst. You and I are thirsty people. And David points the way. And that brings us to the second truth where I want to spend most of our time this morning. In the Lord, there is satisfaction for your soul. In the Lord, there is satisfaction for your soul. Let me begin with two quotes, an old one and a new one. The old one from a guy named Augustine. Thou hast made us for Thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. A new one from an author, John Eldridge. He says, Setting eternity in our hearts was cunning. So that every last one of us would be haunted all our days with unmet longings that would cause us to seek the only fountain that can quench our thirst. You see, David in his words of physical craving that he applies to a spiritual experience, David reminds us here in Psalm 63 that our souls need the living God. And of course, God invites us to this place. He 
does it not just here in Psalm 63, does it in other places like Isaiah 55 where he says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. We sang it earlier. But what does come mean to the living God entail? I mean, we have many in our world, many in our city who are searching for a spiritual experience. They are searching for God. They are searching for something that they know their soul needs, but they're searching in all the wrong places. And David does something amazing in the first line of this psalm. He says, oh God, you are my God. Think about that. You are my God. He uses the article of possession. How many people do you talk, in your life do you talk like that about? Over here is my wife, my Anna. I can say that. But you see in David talking that way, he is using this familial and intimate language to speak of his relationship with the Lord. And this is really the distinguishing mark of the true God, of the triune God that we have come to worship. All other searches for the transcendent fail to see that God, the true God, the one true God, has come near. He's come near to you, He's come near to me, and He's come near for relationship. He's come near for intimacy. Not for distance. For David, in the Old Covenant, the covenant that was working itself out through the ages, David's confidence was the promise made to Abraham and passed down and renewed to him. I will be your God and you shall be my people. But as God made that promise to Abraham, to David, there was always something more coming. There's always something greater. It was all headed for someone else. And that someone else is Jesus. Jesus comes and demonstrates the Father, Father's love and the Father's commitment to have that kind of relationship. And so 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. So for children and children to be, Jesus says in John 7.37, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And so that's where the search begins. The search begins with Jesus. Because only through Jesus can we cry these words. David was God's king. David was the anointed one. God had spoken to David that he would be their God. How dare you take these words upon your lips? Oh God, you are my God? Yes. God is your God. 
Because of Jesus. He is the life-giving water. He is the bread of life. And so yes, thirst is built into the heart of man, but by grace there is remedy. There is satisfaction. And the satisfaction is found in knowing the Lord through Jesus. So much so that you can call Him my God. But let's dig a little deeper about this satisfaction, about this knowing of the Lord. Because I think one of the things that David does in Psalm 63 that is so wonderful, and he does it other places, and other psalm writers do it in other places, but that he focuses us on, he focuses, as he focuses on our relationship with the Lord, he focuses not on our cognitive ability to understand who the Lord is. But he focuses on our experience of the Lord. Now we get nervous sometimes as Reformed Christians when we hear the word experience. Careful, careful, Pastor Nate, stay within the the boundaries. Brothers and sisters, experience is not outside of our reform convictions and our, our commitment to right doctrine. See, David brings this language of thirst and flesh and satisfaction as with food to speak of the intimacy, to speak of the realness that one can have with the living God. We are sensual beings. And David taps into those senses and they take flight with the eyes of faith. In my study, in my listening, I came across uh, an old hymn of John Newton. John Newton of Amazing Grace fame uh, wrote a bunch of lesser known hymns. Some of them good, some of them not so good. But he penned one of these hymns for his local parish And it goes like this. Sight, hearing, feeling, taste, and smell are gifts we highly prize. But these may downward lead to hell while faith to heaven doth rise. More piercing than the eagle's sight, faith views the world unknown, surveys the glorious realms of light and Jesus on the throne. It hears the mighty voice of God and ponders what He saith. His word and works, His gifts and rod have each a voice to faith. It feels the touch of heavenly power and from the boundless source derives fresh vigor every hour to run its daily course. The truth and goodness of the Lord are suited to its tasks. Mean is the worldling's pampered board to faith's perpetual feast. Till saving faith possess the mind, in vain of sense we boast. We are but senseless, tasteless, blind, and and dead, and lost. What I love about that hymn is John Newton takes our senses, our experience in that way, and says, attach them to the eyes of faith, and they become alive. And you can know and you can experience this kind of intimacy, this kind of realness with the Lord. One of the things that David reminds us is that faith takes sight and smell 
and touch and taste. Where? In worship. I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Going back to the sagebrush, brothers and sisters, this is the taproot for thirsty people. Worship is the taproot for thirsty people. It's the conduit of life to your soul in a dry and weary land. And so you're here. Wonderful, you're here. But do you come here through Jesus expecting and wanting to be filled? Even a prayer like this on Sunday morning, Oh God, you my God, earnestly I seek you. That's why I'm going to your house. Not just to know more about you, but to meet with you, to be near you. David's in the wilderness, and yet his memory of the sanctuary with the sights and the smells and the sounds is a memory of seeing God. Now David's experience is very different than ours, right? For David, his eyes, he would see the priests in their garb, their elaborate garb. He'd see the sacrifices being laid on the altar, the smoke of incense filling the room. His nose would smell that burning smoke and that same incense. His ears would hear the bells on the priest's garment, the word of the Lord being read, the bleeding of lambs suddenly ceasing as atonement for sin is made. I mean, it was a different experience. But as we come through Jesus, in the new covenant, to this place, to this sanctuary, our experience is much the same, or can be much the same. Because as we sing, as we lift our voices in chorus with one another, we get a glimpse of of heaven, a glimpse of the choir and the hosts that constantly surround God's throne as we hear His Word preached to us, as we feel it pierce our hearts and speak to our lives in unique and specific ways, we are reminded that God is speaking through His Word. And as we fellowship with one another, as your brothers and sisters in Christ listen and lend an ear to you, as they speak words of healing to your hurt, you feel the love of Christ through one another. And then as you eat and you drink of the bread and the wine, you're reminded through your taste and through your smell of what God has done. You see, worship, the sanctuary, worship is the salt that keeps us wanting more. Worship is the taproot that brings up life-giving water. In the Lord, there is satisfaction for your soul. As I was studying this and thinking about this, I got to this point and I said, Man, I, I want this. I want to be able to cry these same very words that David cries out of a genuine heart. That your love is better than my life. 
That really, you're all I need. But what David expresses here, it's intimidating. There's this urgency, earnestly, he says in verse 1. Some translations say early. It's the first thing that David is after. And he's after it. He wants God. He wants more of God. There's this intensity. Your love is better than my life. Don't forget, David is in a life-threatening situation. It's not like us saying it this morning. David recognizes that he could lose his life. And then there's this intimacy. I meditate on you through the night. My soul clings to you. It's almost like a, a lover's longing. I can't stop thinking about you. I want to be near you. It's quite a heart that's expressed by David. And he doesn't just express it here. He expresses it at other places. Psalm 143.6 My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. And it's not just David. It's the sons of Korah in Psalm 42.1 As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. I want a panting soul. I recognize these things in my head, but how hard it is sometimes to get them to my heart. And then there are the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So how do we do it? How do we cultivate that kind of thirst, that kind of hunger, that kind of longing that we know only is satisfied in the Lord, and yet we find ourselves so often not there? Well, just three things, and we'll end with these. First of all, as you recognize that you live in a world of thirst, and that in the Lord is satisfaction alone, as you try to cultivate this thirst, number one, recognize your need for grace. Recognize your need for grace. I mean, as we step back and look at David's relationship with the Lord, it's all by grace. David knows the Lord. He knows Yahweh because Yahweh has condescended to him. And he can cry these words because Yahweh has given him the grace. There's a prayer of A.W. Tozer that hangs on a bulletin board in my office here, and I've read it to you before. But listen to it again. It's a great prayer. It says, O God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace, and I'm ashamed by my lack of desire. O God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made thirsty still. Show me your glory. I pray thee that I may know thee indeed. Begin in a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. And then give me grace to rise and follow up thee from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long. 
A relationship with the Lord is a relationship that's birthed in grace, but it's a relationship that's nourished in grace. And so if you want more of God, if you want more thirst for God, the place to begin is crying out these very words. I want to want you more. I long to long for you more. Recognize the need for grace. That's the first thing. Number two, don't ruin your appetite. My girls came back from a trip to San Diego and we were talking through the week and one of the things that they went and did was they went to the Cheesecake Factory. Cheesecake Factory is a great restaurant. They don't have them here, do they? Do they have one here? Oh, they do have one here. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, You have to tell me where it is so I can go. Uh, they went to the Cheesecake Factory, and what they, the, the woman who took them there, that's a good friend of ours, what they did is when you go to the Cheesecake Factory, what are you there for? You're there for dessert. And so they had cheesecake first. Because that's what you do. You don't want to fill yourself up at the Cheesecake Factory and not have enough room for dessert. So they sat down and ordered their cheesecake. And had their cheesecake before they ordered their dinner. Now it's a funny story. But it illustrates exactly what we do. Exactly what our lives are so often about. Rather than nourishing our souls with things that are good, we ruin our appetites with other things. With lesser things. With sweet bites that satisfy for a moment, but leave us wanting. So don't ruin your appetite. And then lastly, in this cultivation of thirst for God, keep eating. Keep eating. Keep seeking. Keep remembering. There's a French writer, very familiar quote, I don't remember his name. But a French writer is quoted as saying, the appetite grows with eating. The appetite grows with eating. And so, worship, word, fellowship, the table. Come to these things. Even when you don't want to. Now it's true that the Lord doesn't want your empty religion. He doesn't want you just going through the motions to go through the motions. But the pursuit of Him through the means of grace that He has given, even when at times the passion is not there, if there's an acknowledgement of that inadequacy, God still wants you there. And that's how your appetite is going to grow. And so keep eating. Keep seeking. Life in a weary land, it's the existence that we all have. It's the existence we have through a God who wants a relationship with us. Who invites us to not just enjoy the good gifts He's given, yes, but to enjoy Him as well. 
So send your roots to get it. Send your taproot to get it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for David's heart. For David's words of longing. As we hear them this morning, as I've thought about them this week, there are, there are tinges of There are tinges of truth. There are tinges of reality where I can say, yes, that, that's, that's what I want. And then there are other places where I feel like I'm completely in a different place. So Father, even as I pray for my own heart, for my own heart's longings, I pray for those in this room pray that they would commit themselves to, to keep eating. They would recognize their need for grace. They would be on guard for ruining their appetite and that they would find satisfaction and life in You. And that that life might be so powerful and so evident to those around that others might be drawn into it. So Holy Spirit, take Your Word now from this weak vessel and plant it in the hearts of Your people in whatever way You see fit for Your glory and our good. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.